family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthy, your host, looking forward to two hours of conversational improvisation on some rather interesting topics and some cool live guests, some jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, and an existential wrap-up with our favorite street philosopher. Kirk Ritchie is an event coordinator of rebuilding our local ecosystem from the ground up. Interesting project coming up, and he'll be joined by Hugo Jewell, who's a solar energy expert. And we'll talk about an interesting forum happening tomorrow and continuing through the next few months that you might want to participate in. We have two of the top dentists in the region coming in to talk about the latest in technology, specifically implant technology and conscious sedation. Dr. Claudia Patch and Dr. Chris Amanato will join us from Woodstock General and Implant Dentistry. We'll find out what holistic dentistry is and get the latest in implant dentistry. To uh, help with the conversational improv, my co-host, you know him if you listen to music on the weekends here at Radio Woodstock, because he plays some great ones. Ron Van Warmer will join me. Among our topics, the art of philosophical, psychedelic, big-picture rapping. We're going to hear a little bit from Terrence McKenna. If you haven't heard him before, fasten your seatbelts. It's also delightful. And how did the computer Watson beat the two best Jeopardy champions? And how does that connect with philosophical, psychedelical, big-picture rapping. We'll put it all together with a few surprises here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Once again, proving that no matter how long an intro <laughs> bed we have, I'll just keep talking until we until it gets too till, squeezed at the till end. Until it's over. Ron, good morning. Good morning, Doug. Thank you for warning me when you woke me up this morning that uh, it's a little slippery out there. It is a little slippery. A little icy, so if you're driving around or walking around yeah. in the early hours of the morning here, just uh, put a little care into that. There was a bit of fog out there, too. Love fog. Yeah. Do you know what fog reminds me of? Uh, the great Sherlock Holmes. Yes, indeed. And I've said it before. I'll say it again. One of the most disappointing Moments of my life was when I realized I just read the last ah. of all of Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Then I realized I can read it again. Is there, is there anybody who's carried on that tradition of writing like like some some uh, books? The author dies and somebody else takes over, the like guy James who, Bond. The, the, the sweet, yeah, James Bond took over, uh, but the guy who wrote the the great um, the great Swedish trilogy. Oh right. Um, what was the name of that? Um, uh, the girl with the, the girl with dragon the, tattoo. Dragon tattoo. One of the greatest, yeah, greatest suspense mysteries I've ever read. Trilogy. A guy did take over and has done a pretty good job. Yeah, I haven't read any of the others. I read the first. I would say he's about 80% as good as the original, which no, I will good. take. That's good. Nobody's come close to Conan Doyle, let's be honest. Yeah, no. 
But sure, this is Sherlock Holmes. The answer to a great trivia question. Oh, okay. One of my favorite all-time trivia questions. Oh. Uh, the answer, to Sherlock Holmes. The question is, what fictional character has been played by more actors in the movies than any other character? Hmm. And it's not Sherlock Holmes. It is Sherlock Holmes. Oh, it is Sherlock yeah, Holmes. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say Moriarty or something like yeah. that. Yeah, no, it is Sherlock Holmes. Oh, okay. uh, that's, so um, that's how iconic a yeah. figure he still is. Yeah. Robert yeah. Downey Jr. did it. And Sherlock even though, now here's how good that movie was. with I don't, What was the name of the one that he did? I forget. Anyway, I don't remember the he name did one, and I was really upset that they turned him into like a fist fight, like there's yes. a lot of fist fights and Come on, that's not what Sherlock Holmes was all about. The fact that he wasn't, that he's he was mental. It was cerebral. all in his brain. Exactly. Why are you turning him into those like super fighting hero? <laughs> and yet it was a really well done yeah, movie. I enjoyed was. it. There was another one uh, years ago called The Young Sherlock Holmes. That was excellent. Yeah, I thought that was good. That was excellent. But the you know, you can't beat Basil Rathbone no, or Sherlock Holmes. You actually you can't. He was the best. The one with the the creeper was my favorite. The, 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 oh, anyway, let's. <laughs> Fog reminds me of Sherlock Holmes. Okay, and uh, the but Hound of the Baskervilles and hour. the Moors and the yeah. you know all that. You grew up in Britain. You know better all that than fog. I do. All that fog. Yeah, I know. Well, we're going to try to dissipate the fog here because um, I my favorite theme here for the past five years has been the interaction between the human brain and computer intelligence. Not because I understand the workings of computers, I don't. But being philosophically and psychologically trained, I am fascinated by how. Our interaction with computers is rewiring our brains uh -huh. for good, and also it's creating a lot of anxiety. Yeah. But if you're not aware that we are at the precipice of an evolutionary leap, then you're not paying attention because our brains have been rewired since we showed up on the planet. That's what nature does. Uh -huh. um, and our, the human brain is remarkably what they call it plastic, meaning... Uh, flexible that it can rewire itself it has this amazing ability uh -huh. we also know that there's certain things like alzheimer's and dementia where the suddenly just with a slight shift now the brain can't repair itself and it starts to deteriorate and we're only just now in the year 2020 we're just now starting to get a fairly good glimpse into how our brains work uh -huh. only now and we yeah. have a long way to go and the reason that we are making leaps and bounds in understanding how our own brains work, what could be more important, more fascinating, more consequential than understanding how our brains work, and we certainly don't understand how our brains work from our education, let's be honest. <laughs> you know, memorizing yeah. the, the capital of the countries of South America is, is not the best way yeah. to learn about how our brains work, because memorization is not one of the three most effective ways that we learn. And how much of that do you actually remember now? Gene Shepard, the great humorist from the 60s and Loved 70s. Him. Great radio yeah. personality. Famously said, the only thing he can remember from 12 years of public school education is that Bolivia exports tin. <laughs> what a line. Yeah. Okay. Memorization is not one of the most effective ways we learn. The three most effective ways we learn, according to psychologists, are, and this gets into computer technology, because computers are getting good at, computers are already pretty much better at us at two of the three. Uh -huh. 
So we better focus on the third. Yeah. The first is trial and error. Right. And if you think about how we learned as infants, almost all trial and error. Yeah. And yet our educational system penalizes you for errors. Absolutely. Think about how warped that is. <laughs> right? Errors on a, at a certain level should be celebrated. Yeah. That's how you learn. That's how you learn. Don't put your hand in that fire. Then you put your hand in the fire. Oh, that's why they told me not that's to do that. That's how you learn. But our educational system inhibits trial yeah. and error for the most part. Uh, in college, a little more. Uh, you, first of all, you got to pick some of your own courses. Right. Right. Um, science has only advanced because of trial and error. That's right. Hey, Isaac Newton didn't discover the laws of motion the first time he tried. (laughs) All right. So, um, second most effective way we learn games, right? Yeah. Games and play. And that's why it's so fascinating. One of my favorite moments in TV history. And I watch too much TV since I'm a kid. I got addicted to it. (laughs) But one of the most remarkable few hours of TV was back in 2011. When IBM's computer Watson took on the two best Jeopardy players of all time at that time. One of them, Ken Jennings, just won a competition among the three best. Okay, That's right. And there are documentaries on it. The, The IBM computer engineers who created Watson were in the audience and they were nervous as hell because think about it. They knew that Watson could retrieve information and knowledge infinitely faster than the two humans. Mm -hmm. But if you think of Jeopardy, to be good at Jeopardy, it's not just quantity of knowledge. You have to, your brain has to, within a second, figure out some of the tricky semantics of some of the questions. Yeah. You know, it's interesting now because Google does pretty much the same thing. I'll type something in and it can be very vague and it can figure out what I want. Yep. So, um, to me, watching those three Jeopardies and watching Watson start a little slowly and then slowly just destroy (laughs) these guys was fascinating. So I thought we'd do today is I'm going to talk about an article, good article by Joe Best from of a, a publication called Tech Republic called IBM Watson, the inside story of how the Jeopardy winning supercomputer was born and what it wants to do next. As great as it was that it won the game of Jeopardy, because that's one of the two most effective, two, one, of the most, one of the three most effective ways we learn is games and play, uh-huh. computers now beating us at, at, at the most complex games. Right. Um, then we're going to go to Terrence McKenna. Terrence McKenna is my kind of guy because he's what's called a big picture thinker, a right hemisphere thinker. He loved, he was so thirsty for knowledge, he read in everything. He was an ethnobotanist. Oh, 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 that. Which is basically studying (laughs) the medicinal and healing nature of plants. Okay. And he was a huge advocate of psychedelics, which I am not. I'm not against psychedelics. I just never felt Uh induced to take them. They can be mind expanding. But he's a great um, poster boy for psychedelics because 
he used LSD to exp- to expand his mind, not to burn it out. Uh-huh. And he became this, he would get up in front of audiences, and there's a lot of YouTubes on him. And he had a kind of a strange, squeaky little voice, but it, you quickly forget that because he's so brilliant. But what he does, and this is back in the 80s and 90s, died in 2000 at the age of 54. Uh-huh. What he would do is he would start rapping. He would just start talking about a philosophical issue, and he would start pulling in philosophy, psychology, computers, psychedelics, plants, nature, um, history, and just start weaving an insight by just sort of improvising on different themes. It was quite a tour de force. Yeah. And we're going to hear a section of one of them. Cool. But to try to make the point that the most important... I know it's hard to believe that the most important story of our times is not the impeachment. I'm not saying that's <laughs> not important and not good theater. It is. But it pales in comparison in how it affects our lives compared to the interre- the growing interrelationship between the human mind and the computer brain. So we're going to talk about how Watson won Jeopardy, and then we're going to get into a real true big picture thinker because the the one thing computers are not nearly as good at humans yet, they may be, but maybe not be, is what's called general thinking. In other words, a computer is superb at narrow thinking. You, you give it a particular subject. Right. And it can learn it brilliantly quickly. But we can't yet ask the computer to take what it knows about one subject and apply it to another. Right. So the computer that can play chess isn't necessarily the same computer that can play go correct um that may not be true 10 years from now but That's right true. now it is because the third most important way we learn and it sounds wrong when i say it to most people but if you really think about it you realize how true it is so the three most effective ways the human brain learns trial and error mm-hmm that's why our educational system is failing. It inhibits trial and error. Games yeah. or play. Right. The third one is, and a great promoter of this is the most sought-after speaker probably now in the world, Yuval Noah Havarti, the great historian who wrote Sapiens. And that is our not only our ability to tell stories, but to use stories as learning techniques. Right. So, um, how did Watson do it? Fascinating. Um, when a few people at IBM got the idea and were given at least a little bit of money to go ahead and try to create a computer that could win Jeopardy, they were basically given a closet, <laughs> three guys, yeah. and they just hung out. <laughs> and when they first showed up, to, not on television, to play Jeopardy, it, was, it couldn't beat a five-year-old. Hmm. So, so, and yet, within a few years, it beat the best. So, how'd they do it? The information that the algorithm they created would eventually be able to query for Jeopardy was 200 million pages of information. 200 million. All the information had to be locally stored because the rule was going to be that Watson, when he played Jeopardy, was not allowed to access the internet. Ah. He had to. He, it could only, I should say he, it could only <laughs> um, access 
what it had stored in, in its own mechanism, in its own memory. Okay. Watson wasn't allowed to connect to the Internet during the quiz and understood, queried, and processed at a fair clip. In Jeopardy's case, Watson had to spit out answers in a matter of seconds to make sure it was first on the buzzer. Um, <clears throat> at and first, the computer could barely beat a five-year-old. The projection was, God only knows how long it will take to beat an adult, let alone the best Jeopardy players in the world. And interestingly, uh, on Jeopardy, a lot of people don't know, is that you can't buzz in when you read the question. You have to wait for Alex to get to a certain point. In the question, in otherwise the question. it won't buzz in. Right. And, and as Ken Jennings wrote, who just became the greatest human Jeopardy player of all time, yeah, you have to have an amazing uh, repository of, of knowledge mm -hmm. to win a Jeopardy. But it's not just quantity of knowledge. You have to have a nimble brain semantically because a lot of the questions are kind of clever puns and things like right. that. How do you teach a computer that? Yeah. And third, he said, the key is you have to get, you have to be incredibly practiced at the timing of the buzzer. Exactly. Because if you click too soon, it won't <clears throat> mm -hmm. let you in. And if you're too late, someone else will have the answer. Okay. How do you turn a quiz show winner into something more business-like? The first job for Watson team was to get a grips on a machine they had inherited from IBM Research that had 41 separate subsystems. In its first year, the system got sped up and slimmed down. Quote, we serialized the threads and how the software worked and drove up the performance. I don't know what that means, <laughs> but that's what they did. The system today... Compared to the Jeopardy system in 2011, which won, uh -huh. is 240% faster and 1 16th the size. Wow. That's what we have to wrap our brains around. Computer intelligence is not expanding arithmetically, but exponentially. Yeah. <clears throat> Jeopardy Watson had one task. Get an answer, understand it, and find the question that goes with it. It was a single-user system. Okay. Right. So in other words, had three quiz masters put three answers to it, the machine would have just seized up. Watson, now because after it won Jeopardy, IBM said, okay, that was cool. What a great marketing. We had millions of people watching and writing about us. What next? Well, now Watson is helping oncologists. Um Analyze cancer, ah. MRIs, etc. Uh huh. Watson had to be retooled for a scenario where tens, hundreds of clinicians would be asking questions at once. In other words, Watson now is in the cloud, and a medical clinician can access it uh -huh. and start asking questions about patients. So they had to devise a Watson that can not only be brilliant when asked a question from one source, but from thousands of sources. Complex conversations with several related queries, one after the other, all asked in non-standard formats and in different languages. Aye. The content adaptation for healthcare followed the same path as getting Watson up to speed for Jeopardy. Feed it information, show it what right looks like, 
and then let it guess what right looks like and correct if it's wrong. In other words, <clears throat> the reason Watson was so successful be, is because it could do a trial and error. It couldn't only, not only could it access, at that time, it's much more, in 2011, it could access 200 million pages of information. Right. Now it's much better than that. Not only could it access that in a, in, in a second, but then it had to pull out the information from the 200 million pages that related to the answer. <clears throat> and what it did was it would then, within a split second, do what the human brain does, it turns out. <clears throat> Different small modules within the computer brain, just like we have groups of neurons in our brain that are modules. So we have a module for, say, spatial information. Mm -hmm. We have another module for temporal information. We have another module for color. We have another module for right. this and that, right? <clears throat> for smell, for touch. For... These nodules go to work in a split second. And then Watson was taught, just like our brain is, to say, okay, once we get to a certain probability we have the right answer, we're going to ring in. So Watson was, may not have been 100% sure when it rang in, but it wouldn't ring in unless it was something like 70 to 80% certain. And it would do all this waiting of all the information. All right, what are the probabilities that I could be right? Within a split second. Yeah. But so do our brains. <clears throat> yeah. The difference is our brains work through electricity and chemicals. Computers work through mathematical algorithms. <clears throat> okay. So in Jeopardy, Watson was fed, fed thousands of question and answer pairs from the show, right? Right. And then was taught what a right response looked like. Then it was given just the answers and asked to come up with the questions. When it went wrong, it was corrected. Through machine learning, it would begin to get a handle on this whole dynamic and modify its algorithm accordingly. Now, here's, here's the kicker here. It wasn't just counting on human input. It also had the ability to do trial and error and correct itself. Uh -huh. Unlike its Jeopardy counterpart, Healthcare Watson today also has the ability to go online so not all its data has to be stored. In the Jeopardy contest, <clears throat> did Watson get wrong answers? Yes. It did? Yes. So it beeped in and got wrong answers. Correct. Even though it thought it was... It, well, well, think about it. I don't know what their baseline was for an answer. Maybe it was 70%, 75%, 8% probability to be right. Right. Let's say it was 80%. That means 20% of the time it could be wrong. Uh-huh. But the odds were in its favor. Yeah. Um, which is how our brain works, which is why throw certainty out the window. Yeah. But, but we don't have to be certain. We do very well if our brains are working with good probability. Uh-huh. Right? You didn't know you were going to make it here to the studio this morning. Right. You were not 100% certain. Right. Sure. Flat tire, deer, ice, um, who knows? Yeah. Uh, 
but the odds are pretty good because we seem to make it every week. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's 100% certain. Right. Well, Watson had 2 million pages of medical... Oh, God. So Watson has 2 million pages of medical data from 600,000 different sources. It could still make use of the general knowledge that it got from Jeopardy. For example, all of Wikipedia. Hey. But Watson, so in other words, right now, Watson is acting as a clinician's assistant, right? So if a doctor signs up for the service, he or she can access Watson and have it analyze x-rays, um, clinical notes. Based on huge amounts of information from lots of different sources. Much more than any doctor could do. Exactly. But it has, this is where we, we have to both, we have to be aware of what's called anthropomorphizing, mm -hmm. putting human qualities onto non-human things. We he. do it all the time. So think about what the author is saying. Watson has bigger ambitions than being a clinician's <laughs> assistant. It's giving Watson the computer willpower. It's obviously the IBM executives and, we're, and and computer experts who are doing this uh -huh. but we don't know for a we don't know with a hundred percent certainty that computers are not as they are teaching themselves that they're not going to develop some form of self-will yeah no one can say that can't happen no you can't say it can't happen <clears throat> right now 2020 Watson's medical knowledge is about equivalent to a first-year medical student. Hmm. But in the very near future, because things are moving so fast, IBM anticipates Watson passing the general medical licensing board exams. Wow. And since it's moving exponentially, once it passes the board exam, means meaning it has the competency to be a medical doctor, it's going to get better and better and better. Right. And it still has access to all that information that a single person can't have. Correct. But even more important, as impressive as that is, what's more important is it's learning through trial and error how to, I'll use the word, creatively analyze medical data and come up with um, what's I always blank out on the word because doctors over diagnosis diagnosis thank you right yeah and you say well gee do we really want a computer doing that why not yeah what human doctors don't make p p incorrect diagnoses human doctors guess all the time all the time <laughs> it's about probability uh huh so anyway there's Watson first winning Jeopardy which was amazing. Yeah. Because it wasn't just about quantity of information. It was about patterns of information and applying those the ability to access information. Human does it through memory. So do computer. Computers have memories. Mm -hmm. But then being able to connect the dots between the, in, the, the information itself and how it might apply to the Jeopardy, you know, Requirement. requirement. Yeah. Um, 
fascinating stuff. So that's the computer part of it. When we come back from our break, we're going to play eight to ten minutes of Terrence McKenna, uh, who I think you'll enjoy. If you, well, we'll we'll talk about why he's so enjoyable, um, but um, he was a one of a kind, and uh, we're going to play him because <coughs> I'm sneezing just thinking about it. <laughs> he's such a good example of human right hemisphere thinking which so far computers aren't that good at right and so that's the part of our brain we need to be exercising if we are going to relate to computers and the two of us together are going to make the biggest leaps going forward and we're going to have to if the species is going to survive because yeah. yeah. there's these little things called climate change you and, know and, and the computers are doing the uh, actual surgeries too Correct. Which means you don't have shaky hands. You don't have... Well, you actually you know. have remote surgeries where a great surgeon could be in New York and do surgery in the Philippines. Right. In real time. Aye. Through the cloud and then computerized arms and things like that, you know, doing the surgery. Doing the surgery. Hello? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there still is, there's so far in 2020, I, I can't predict the future, there's still room for the human brain in all this. And we're going to give an example of it when we come back. This is the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Ruther, your host with co-host Ron Van Warmer. And um, we have some good guests coming up in the second hour. Yeah. Uh, two gentlemen who are involved with the 8th Annual Film and Discussion Series, Rebuilding Our Local Ecosystem from the Ground Up. We'll tell you about that. That's tomorrow evening. And two of the leading dental practitioners in the region will be here. Dr. Claudia Patch and... Uh, Dr. Chris Amanato, they are experts in implant dentistry, conscious sedation, and we're going to catch up on the latest in technology uh, with uh, dentistry and our oral health. But we're talking about the, the interrelationship between the human brain and computer brain. <clears throat> and one of the great human brains that I've enjoyed listening to over the ages, never got to meet him, was Terrence McKenna. Terrence McKenna was an ethnobotanist. He studied the healing power of plants. He got into shamanism. He got into mm. psychedelics. He got into, but he was extremely well-read in philosophy, psychology, history, and art. A renaissance man. He was. But what he could do that Watson can't yet do is literally improvise by pulling in strands of information and insights from various subjects and weave them on the spot like a rapper. Hmm. 
If that sounds too good to be true, let's hear a little bit of Terrence. Um, I don't know when this is from, but he died in the year 2000. But there's a lot of him on YouTube. Um, he's written a lot of books. He was just a, not only was he a brilliant thinker, <clears throat> he was one of those people who really created a university without walls. He had a big following. He would show up. People would show up to learn from him. He would teach courses at alternative schools and things like that. But he broke down the walls of the typical university. Mm. And he was a true big picture thinker. Let's hear a little bit of Terence McKenna. The big news coming out of science in the last 10 years, perhaps the last certain truth that science will secure before its transformation, and it's a very important one, it's that nature is self-similar across scale. This is something that couldn't have been said even 10 years ago. Nature is self-similar across scale. This is big news, big understanding. And what does it mean? Well, it means, I'm sure you all have pondered the similarity between the structure of an atom, a galaxy, and uh, a solar system. And if, if you inquired about this, you were told it's coincidence. Well, P.W. Bridgman is the person who pointed out that a coincidence is what you have left over when you apply a bad theory, <laughs> you see. So, until ten years ago when you asked this question, you would be told it's a coincidence. Uh, you know, it's easy to make a scientific revolution. I can remember when I was about nine going to my mother in a state of high excitement and saying, have you noticed that South America will fit against Africa like a puzzle piece? And then we looked into it and we were told, uh, this is a coincidence. <laughs> well, it wasn't 10 years before continental drift made a revolution out of the earth sciences by doing what? By recognizing what an eight-year-old child could point out that Africa and South America were obviously once joined together. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see this. You just have to have some experience with crossword puzzles and an open mind. So nature is self-similar across scales. That means that an atom is like a galaxy, is like a solar system, but it means more than that. It means that we can extrapolate toward cosmic processes by thinking about our own lives. Because our own lives are a tiny, fractal piece of data that is part of a much larger, integrated, modular hierarchy that we now realize will have the same architectonic as our own immediate experience, except it will be expressed uh, on a much larger scale. So that's the first and simplest part of this suggestion for a, a reformation of science that I want to propose. First of all, that this fractal principle be cl more clearly enunciated and understood. Uh, everybody is talking about fractals. 
but it, it took Ralph Abraham to get it down to a bumper sticker for me. And the, it is. Nature is self-similar across scales. Companies explode the same way economies explode, the same way the biota of a continent explode. Processes are always similar, but only differ in scale. And what that means then is that our most immediate datum of experience, which is the feeling of being in a body, alive and feeling, can be extrapolated and mapped on to larger and smaller processes in the universe to give not, not only uh, a, a, a sentient universe, a living universe, a dynamic universe, a universe with purpose, but it, uh, it also gives us a universe with a very interesting set of closure properties that are different from the ones we learned from science. The thing about science and its cosmology is that it makes us irrelevant. We're told that we are an accident around an ordinary star in an ordinary galaxy in an ordinary portion of the local supercluster and it's just ordinary, 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 nothing to be excited about and then you know you have existentialism which says well then if you want to get excited you have to admit that you're just doing it on your own hook this is called conferring meaning rather than discovering meaning you we confer meaning the existentialist tell us and and it's good as long as it lasts and then that's nothing too but all of these conclusions have been based on ignoring a second fact about nature that is as cogent as its fractality and far more important for us, I believe. And this second factor is that the further back in time you go, the slower everything unfolds. Uh, our present domain of experience is a domain of furious activity. I mean, every, many, many things go on on this planet in a single day. Uh, there are inventions, there are books, there are transactions, there are uh, meetings and dissolutions. Uh, uh, we live in a busy, busy, busy world. As you journey backward in time, the world becomes less and less busy. And when you leave the domain of organic evolution, the world becomes boring as hell. And when you go further back to the period before even molecular chemistry, you know, it's so boring one can barely compose a comment. So uh, infused with ennui is the observer in the contemplation of the scene. But science has never... In, uh, inculcated this observation into its model of reality. Uh, we're told time is invariant. Therefore, this notion of speeding up or of complexity in some parts of time and not in others, it must be an artifact of observation. It must be an illusion or a mistake. 
It isn't real. But I maintain it is one of the most persistent facts about reality. That All right. <clears throat> now there's going to be a quiz. Now, I mean, the whole point is uh, he's a right hemisphere thinking. The right hemisphere of our brain is the one that seeks out a big picture. It doesn't try to break things into parts. It, it integrates. That's what he's brilliant at. Now, I think he's a good rapper, number one. Number two, you can tell he's not reading from notes. Yeah. He's not behind a lectern reading from notes. He's improvising. Um, he's pulling together things as he speaks. Now, he has a certain themes he knows he's going to unravel, but... You can tell he's, there's, a, there's a sense of improvisation. And you can also tell he's taken a lot of drugs. Uh, <laughs> but they've actually expanded his mind. A lot of well, people I know it. have taken a lot of drugs. Their brains don't work as well anymore. He, he found a way to use drugs to literally expand his mind uh-huh. and, and speed up his ability to access and process and integrate information. And his point is one that I think is the most important point of why every one of us feels it we see it in everybody else there's anxiety all over the place like we've never seen or felt it before mm-hmm. okay why is that it's because while things have been speeding up ever since the big bang they're speeding up at an exponential level now than we've ever experienced before as human beings because of the interrelationship between the human brain and the computer brain the computer works at a faster speed than we do yeah and we're trying to, whether we're, if we're not conscious of it, we're going to let the computer speed up our brains too much and we're going to freak out. It's part of all this anxiety, information overload, which would be a tragedy because access to all the information we now have that were never accessible before in human history should be an enormous advantage. But we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it because we're not computers. And we're going to burn out a lot faster than a computer is. So the speed up that he's talking about is crucial to understand. And we have to figure out how to deal with it because it can be an enormous advantage. Yeah. Or, in other words, as I like to say in my talks, it's leading us to the next renaissance. And it's also leading us to mass anxiety. Both are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And when you go back to the Italian renaissance and what happened after that through Europe, um. It was an amazing time. It was a rebirth of, of philosophy and art and spirit that were gone and buried in the Middle Ages. Uh, but it was also a time of intense anxiety. They tend to go together. Yeah. And um, uh, the difference between now and the first Renaissance, we have access to much more information now if we choose to do it. Think about what Tarek's McKen- whether you agree with him or not, isn't the point. Look at how his brain is able to access information from philosophy, psychology, psychedelics, nature, botany, biology, physics, cosmology, spirituality, shamanism. He's integrating it all at once. Mm-hmm. Computer can't do that yet. Yet. I, you know, I see in the future the possibility of a computer... <clears throat> believing that it has empathy i don't know that it'll believe it but it'll certainly be able to mimic it to such an expert degree that it'll pass what's called the turing test alan turing Uh the father of computer technology in many ways um 
back in the, I guess, the 30s, said, here's the test. You pass the Turing test when a human being can no longer tell whether it's talking to a human or a computer. Right. I don't think we're that far away. I don't think we're that far away. Um, it's so uh, the I don't know that the computer. We don't know. I don't know that the computer will believe it feels and has empathy. Um, but it will certainly be able to mimic it mm-hmm. to such a degree that if you think humans are close to their their pets, their dogs and their cats, yeah, what do you see? When suddenly there's something that sounds and reacts to us like a hu- like a true human being who actually cares for us, and they're and they're working toward that using robotics to be um, uh, like pets with people. Okay, but here's and again here's where we get arrogant. Um, when we, we say arrogant yet, <laughs> <laughs> not yet. Okay, uh, when we say, well, a computer can't do that. Well, first of all, why should it? <laughs> In other words, why should we assume that our intelligence, that, that, a, that a computer should be mimicking our intelligence? Uh-huh. Why should we assume that we're as high as intelligence can ever get? Yeah. I mean, evolution would say that's, that's probably wrong. There's going to be a species that we evolve into that's going to be much more intelligent than we are. Right. I, it's feelings that I think humans have that computers don't have feeling empathy feeling caring feeling and the question love. we the, the question we don't ask is because it's too painful what are the advantage and advantages ah. and disadvantages of those feelings well it would be a an interesting world without them well from from the <laughs> if we're looking at it from the human standpoint it would be a horrible world without feelings <laughs> Right. Right. That's a big part of who we are, of what we are, of what we are. Right. But that and and at least for the foreseeable future, that's going to be the game is how do we integrate the best of human qualities with the best of computer intelligence? Yeah. How do we do that? Well, that would seem to be some connection between feelings and intelligence that has to be worked out. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, at any rate, um, when I listen to Terrence McKenna, I just, it just gives me confidence that we have a, we have, <laughs> you know, we have a shot at using our brains in really creative and, and interesting ways. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. You know, uh, and not, not predictable ways because the one thing we've learned from modern biology in terms of evolution is evolution is not survival of the strongest. Right. It's survival of the most adaptable. Exactly. And the reason science now knows that that when we say that survival of the most adaptable, what we're saying is the ones that do best in evolution are the ones who can deal with novelty. Yeah. Well. And we say we like novelty, but we really don't. We really like tradition. We want to... We want to know how something's going to work out. We want to know how something works. We're not, uh, we're, most of us are not as open to change because we're not educated to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people don't like change. In the dream world, the most significant change is represented by death. Ah. 
the death of something old before something the, new can arise. And the unknown. And the unknown. At any rate, to be continued, do we have a, a call coming in? We have a call coming Good. in. Good. We have two folks uh, hopefully calling in because they're doing a very practical, now that we've gone too far out into outer space to even be practical, we're going to get back down to earth and be practical because <laughs> the 8th Annual Film and Discussion Series is coming up at the Woodstock Jewish Congregation. Uh, hi, who's on the line? Uh, this is Kirk Ritchie from Woodstock Transition. Hey, Good Kirk, morning. how are you? We're live on the air, and uh, okay. we're waiting for Hugo to call in. Here he, here he is, so hang in with us. Hugo, are you there? Hey, this is not Hugo, but it's Jeff out in High Falls. <laughs> well, Jeff, <laughs> we, Should I hang up? I didn't hear why I should call. Oh, uh, okay, <clears throat> we have to, we're waiting for another guest, but thanks for calling in. Hey, brother, have a great day. I love your show. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. If Hugo doesn't call in, we'll let Jeff uh, be the expert in solar energy. <laughs> okay. Well, Kirk, uh, actually, uh, you're, the a, you're the event you're the event coordinator, and while we're waiting for Hugo, um, let's talk about it. Uh, it's tomorrow evening is the first of a series of this film yeah. and discussion series, and it's entitled "Rebuilding Our Local Ecosystem from the Ground Up." What are we going to learn if we come by tomorrow? Well, first we'll be on the first event. We'll be focused on home energy plans for the 21st century. So uh, that's the title of the event. And we'll be helping people understand that there actually are practical ways in which they can plan to move away from fossil fuels and into electrifying their homes. We have one speaker that will be speaking about, um, from their own experience, 10 money-saving steps to 100% renewable energy. A life, a life of 100% renewable energy. So th this gentleman who's speaking, Tom uh, Conrad, is actually, he's also the chair of the Marble Town Environmental Commission, uh, that uh, just our neighboring town, and he is a, a financial advisor as well. And so he brings that element of, of uh, the return on investment and savings associated with this type of planning and this type of investment in our own homes. Uh, another speaker will be talking, uh, Hugo, who... Uh, regrettably won't be able to join us this morning because he has uh, some issues he's having to uh, family, with his family. So okay, we hope that he'll works be, out. Yeah, he'll be speaking about, uh, again, retrofitting our homes, which is one of the biggest things we could do practically in our own uh, And so that's part of the focus will be on retrofitting. And that oftentimes sounds very boring, but uh, it shouldn't be because these are both people that have living experience of, uh, of changing their lives retrofitting their homes right, and making Kirk, their homes Kirk, more we're hearing a, we're hearing a noise through your phone are you is there uh, someone else on the line there now hey i no. called back this is jeff um <laughs> oddly enough i was a um solar installer so if you have any questions about that i mean i could help out <laughs> all right well hang out with us jeff what the hell we we like to improvise i'm sure kirk okay. won't mind yeah i'm no, no issue i mean solar is a big part of the of the of the effort going forward these are the choices that people can make we also now can make solar choices that are not necessarily bound to our property, we can sign up for community solar. So we'll be talking about that as well. And so, so we start from a bigger picture of what the state is doing and what the new laws are mandating for our communities to, to participate in. And then we bring it down to the homeowner and the property owner uh, to discuss ways in which they can engage their own plans on ways to move towards renewable energy. Well, let me ask this first to It'll Kirk, be... and then, Jeff, you can chime in quickly, and that is this. Okay, great. I know how people think. Everybody, well, I, I'm, I'm guessing that most of the people listening would like to be 100% renewable, but then it starts mm -hmm. to get complicated, and then they start saying, well, but wait a minute, isn't it, how long, 
for how long is it going to cost me more before it costs me less? Well, that's a very good question, and that's some, of, some of those questions can be answered really easily. It, it, this will be answered at, at this event. Um, some, of, you know, some of what we don't really talk about much in terms of investment is, like, for instance, we have solar on our property, um, and is the money that is never leaving my account after that loan for that solar that I've paid off now is paid off, that money that never leaves my account, my bank account, gets into the thousands of dollars in the decade that follows. Thousands. Okay. Okay, so it's so now making is, a lot more sense. This than... is a return. This is, you know, it's, it's a different mindset. Yes, there's money to be invested, but that money will reduce the total cost of ownership and total cost of operation in the near term. And in the long term, it will also... Um, you know, lessen the, lo- the flow of money from my bank account out for the resources of me to just simply live day to day. Okay, we're talking with Kirk Ritchie. He's the event coordinator for the 8th Annual Film and Discussion Series. It's called Rebuilding Our Local Ecosystem from the Ground Up. That's the first of the series, and that takes place tomorrow evening from 7 to 8.30 at the... Woodstock Jewish Congregation on Glasgow Turnpike in Woodstock. Uh, Kirk, uh, somebody washing dishes back there? Hey, it's me. It's Jeff. Yeah, well, we got to stop the no- Stop washing dishes or whatever the noise okay. is. Um, okay, yeah, I was, I'm walking around letting my goats and chickens out. I'll stop walking. Okay, we appreciate that. So, Kirk. So uh, I, have, I have an input, and I agree with him 100% on all those points. Um, I worked for Solar Generation, a smaller company, on Route 28. Mm. Yeah, great company. company. What's that? He was complimenting Um, your company. Go ahead. You know, I think I agree on all those points about the money, but what I think is the bigger, you know, payback is just helping the earth, you know? Like, you're trying to do something good. So, yeah, you can look for the money payback, but if you're good with that payback, like, you're helping Mother Earth. You know, so that's my input. So you're, <laughs> you're lessening the uh, carbon, the carbon footprint. footprint that you're creating. Yeah, and there, I mean, obviously, there's some, you know, waste in solar, you know, like the recycling. What I saw as an installer, the, recy- the you know, the end product for me, like I'm, you know, an environmentalist and stuff. So the end product for me was where I had, you know, the only gripe. And it wasn't really that much because the end product, you can take it apart and probably recycle it, but there's no direct recycling. That's what I saw. Right, I, do well, you have an input on that as an expert? Well, first, let me, let me uh, ask you, Kirk. How, how, oh, whoa. Uh, so, yes, because Doug. we don't have a lot of time, I want people to have the practical information if they want to attend sure. the yeah, series. Sure. So is there a website people can go to, Kirk? Well, there's Facebook pages. You can go to the Woodstock Land Conservancy Facebook page. You can go to Woodstock Transitions Facebook page. And and also uh, the other, uh, you know, I'm sure you could find that information from the uh, Woodstock Jewish Congregation through if you're associated with that congregation. Those are the three main sponsors of the event, and we, uh, so that, the information is available there. Um, okay, so just to repeat, also at our- we've got the Woodstock Jewish Congregation website, the Woodstock New York Transition website, or Woodstock yes. Land Conservancy website. Uh, this is, yeah. by the way, one of a number, uh, a series that are going to go right through April. In February, there'll be uh, Pollinator and Bird Pathway, March 30th, Regenerative Agriculture, 
and April 27th, Thanks. Rethinking Disposables for a Cleaner Planet. So we appreciate the fact that um, that this information is getting out there. Whoever's uh, I, Good luck with washing your dishes there, Jeff. And um, Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'll let you guys go. I okay. appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thanks. And uh, Kirk, um, good luck with the series. Yes, Again, the first one starts tomorrow evening, 7 to 8.30, Woodstock Jewish Congregation on Glasgow Turnpike in Woodstock. Rebuilding our local ecosystem from the ground up. Who knows? Maybe the species will survive, you know? <laughs> Maybe the species will survive. Doug, thank you very much for having me on and allowing me to speak about the event. I appreciate uh, the, uh radio and and also look forward to seeing everyone tomorrow evening. You bet. Well, good luck with everything, and uh, thanks for doing it. We appreciate thank it. Thank you, Doug. Okay, Kirk. Uh, we are going to take a break. Um, you never know the show is improvised. You never know. Um at any rate, here's what's going to happen in the next hour. We're going to have jazz. It's going to be live. Yeah. Because the Sultan of Sonic Soul has entered the room. Talk about fractal self-similar patterns. Uh, he'll, he'll demonstrate them. Uh, we're going to welcome Dr. Claudia Patch and Dr. Chris Amanedo. They are two of the leading experts in the country on dental implants. We're going to get the latest in dental technology, including conscious sedation and holistic dentistry. Uh, and we're going to open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox. So um, hang out with us here for the next hour at the Woodstock Roundtable. Ah! 